This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the NOLA Public School District hopes to develop a so-called early warning system to utilize individual student data, such as attendance, behavior, and course performance, to identify and intervene with students who may not be on track to graduate. The city of New Orleans has joined two other utility regulators to file a complaint against utility company Entergy Corporation over its management of the Grand Gulf Nuclear Station in Mississippi. And the newly elected district attorney in Orleans Parish, Jason Williams, made good on a campaign promise by vacating the convictions of 22 people who had split jury verdicts, many of whom have spent decades in prison. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hey, Marta. Hi, Karen. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Good morning. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hey, Charles. Good morning. Marta, we're starting with education first. New Orleans Public Schools announced that they're in the planning stages on a so-called early warning system for its students. What is this kind of system and does it work? Uh, yeah, so this is a kind of a, a multi-data point analysis system. It's a, a system that other school districts have used for years. And really kind of what it looks at is uh, what they say is the ABCs. So attendance, behavior, and courses, and whether or not students are completing them are kind of the main frames of that system. And then districts, as they choose, can build in other uh, data points. But really what the, the point of the system is, is to look at what can be red flags uh, early on in a student's middle and high school career to uh, figure out whether or not they're on track to graduate and then uh, where and how to help them if they're, if they're not on track to graduate on time. Marta, is this one of the initiatives that's kind of grown out of NOLA Public Schools' uh, you know, new focus on on uh, graduation and, and high schools and, and making sure kids are, are up to date on everything. Yeah, I really think it is. Um, uh, we all know, and we talk a lot about the Kennedy graduation scandal that happened two years ago. And since then, we have seen such an uptick in uh, more of a really a centralized role that the district is playing. And it's been, I don't want to say exactly passive, but it's been a little more uh, sort of review type, like we're going to come in and we're going to look at a set of student files or now you need to tell us what courses you're offering and just, you know, sort of these kind of measurements in time. But this early warning system that it sounds like they hope to build out is uh, really much more, you know, real-time analysis and monitoring of, of these various data points that could indicate students are not on track to graduate. We don't exactly know what role the district would play in potential interventions, which can be anything from uh, getting you tutoring to getting you and putting you in a remedial class to uh, maybe providing a mentor or something like that. I would venture to guess that that would be more up to the schools, but this certainly is another one of these examples where the district is appearing to take more of a, a, a bigger role than they would have in a traditional or non-traditional system of charter schools. You said they're looking at it, but other systems already have it. Do you mean across the state, across the country, both? Across the country. Okay. And what's the data on how well these things work? The federal government has uh, analyzed this a few years back, and they didn't specifically speak to how the systems work. But we do know that um, some of these certain data points, such as how you perform in ninth grade and your attendance, 
and things like that are, you know, clear-cut indicators of whether or not you're going to graduate from high school. So then I think all those taken together are just, you know, a better measure or a better way to potentially track how a student is doing and how to help them. And it's a software type program that potential. I would guess that the super uh, the New Orleans Public School District would pay for, or does each school have to opt in and help help uh, fund that for themselves? Yeah. So what it sounds like right now is um, we know a lot of schools use this company or platform called PowerSchool for their student um, data system, which tracks attendance and grades and things like that. And the district, it, in this uh, early warning system, they're going to be working with a group called Who Knew It, which is actually spelled with an H. It's the funny play on words. Yeah. But they're a group that was recently acquired by PowerSchool that I think, you know, is really good at tracking data and creating specialized systems. So that, that would be then built into PowerSchool and uh, charter schools could use it to, you know, have this more advanced way to track students. You noted in the story that there are other inputs available, such as income and other, a little more uh, intrusive, perhaps, data points. Um, does each school decide what data points to use or to input? So we asked the district about that, and they have, they have not yet decided uh, what measures they're going to use or what's going to kind of be available on this for schools to track. And it's not clear what schools are participating at this point. I don't know if schools will be able to pick certain data points to monitor or not or what they want to do. Yeah, there are these other areas you can look at, you know, such as interaction with the juvenile justice system or we talked to the chief operating officer at the NET high school, which is an alternative high school. And he he said, you know, we know once a student has their second child, like they're much less likely to graduate from high school. So even though these are you know, more familial and personal things, if, if those are data points that are telling us, hey, maybe we need to help this student more, perhaps it's worth tracking. Right. And likewise, it, it, it sounds like they're very early on in this. So we don't know, for example, if this is going to be something that the board is going to want to write, write into district-wide policy, or if this will, should it, should it actually happen, be treated as more of an opt-in type system. Is that right? Right. And, and like we've seen with other things, we don't know how much the district will own this itself, like you said, or whether, you know, it would be controlled within schools. Right. How far along are they on the process? They're just at the very beginning stages. We've talked to a few school leaders who have uh, been in on meetings, I think, that are just kind of the very uh, formative. What do people want out of this? What do we hope to achieve from this? Could you foresee some students not, or some uh, schools not wanting to participate in this type of system for some reason? Um, I don't know if any schools are going to not want to participate. I, I think schools would maybe want to know to what extent is this data going to be shared with the district. And then I think there's probably other groups out there what, that would be concerned with, you know, how is this, is this data going to be publicly presented at all? How is it collected and stored? Are any of these things triggering outside interventions or any interaction with the justice system or anything like that. I think that would uh, be the main concern of, of other groups. And what was the impetus for the development of the program? How did they get uh, hooked up with it in the first place? They, uh, they haven't said that. We asked them to talk about this and they just said we're in the very early stages. There's not really a whole lot to talk about yet. So huh. I think it's fair to at least offer the hypothesis that it's, you know, it's a combination of a couple things. One is this renewed 
focus in the wake of the Kennedy scandal on graduating on time. That, that the uh, the district has really come you know come down on in the last couple of years. And the other one I think is probably that concerns we've seen about students dropping off during the pandemic. Uh, I'm guessing is a major concern for the district. Okay. Yeah, we've absolutely seen a lot of focus around attendance and trying to increase attendance. And and for the first time ever, the district has collected attendance information from charter schools, which is something it had never done before. Okay. And throwing a curveball at you here for a second, um, any information on COVID cases at schools? Uh, they were low this week, um, like they've been the last couple of weeks. Again, we still don't, you know, we're a little farther out from Mardi Gras, but we still don't. Uh, that was kind of a wonky week. Um, and then we do know that at least 1,500 teachers have been vaccinated, and they hope that 3,000 will be vaccinated by the end of this week. Awesome. Just quite a lot of, pr- that's impressive. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It's great news. Thank you. Thank you. Michael, the New Orleans City Council announced that they're filing a complaint against Entergy over $1 billion in additional costs allegedly caused by mismanagement of the Grand Gulf Nuclear Station in Mississippi. What is this complaint? Where was it filed? Tell us all about it. Yeah, so so this complaint, um, it, it really has to do with how Entergy, um, a utility company, has managed this nuclear plant, um, the Grand Gulf Nuclear Power Station in, um, in Mississippi. Um, and, and what the complaint alleges is that mismanagement of the plant has caused these frequent outages at the plant that have caused extra fees uh, and higher bills for, for Entergy's um, customers. So Entergy is a parent company and it has a bunch of subsidiaries under it. So there's Entergy New Orleans, which I pay my bill to. Um, there's also Entergy Louisiana, which operates in the rest of the state. And then you have Entergy Arkansas, as well as Entergy Mississippi. There are a bunch of them, but, but the, the people bringing this suit are the New Orleans City Council as the regulator of Entergy New Orleans. And then you have the, the, the Public Service Commissions of Arkansas and Louisiana as well. Who initiated the suit and we joined late or was it all in the planning stages at the beginning t- to do it together? So in the press release, I mean, the language was that the language implied that this has been in the works for about a year, um, that they, they've hired outside counsel, outside consultants to um, look at Grand Gulf, look at like the technical details to see if there was really a case here, whether you could really um, charge that Entergy had done something um, that would justify, you know, um, a refund, which is basically what they're asking for. Um, but, you know, the, again, the, the suit, you know, alleges that, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of extra costs have been brought um, because of these mistakes that have been made at Grand Gulf um, and the unreliability there. And so now they're asking for the company to return that money. Okay. So it's been ongoing, planning anyway, for this kind of suit. But then last month we had those bills. Some some customers received giant bills and that was tied somehow to um, Grand Gulf as well. Was that just salt in the wound? Yeah, so so Grand Gulf has been an issue for a while. Um, we wrote about it back in 2019 about how unreliable it had been. It, at the time, and it likely still is, one of the most, if not the most, unreliable nuclear plants in the country. So basically, the way that nuclear plants are supposed to work is that they create a ton of energy. Um, and they're really supposed to be these like workhorse power generators that are always on. 
um, creating this kind of regional base load of electricity. And that's really what Grand Gulf is to this region. Um, it really provides a ton of electricity. And for the most part, these generators run most of the year. Um, on average, back when we were reporting in 2019, and I believe the average is still the same, but on average, uh, nuclear plants in the U.S. are operating at about 92-93% of their maximum possible generation. Now, between 2016 and 2018, for Grand Gulf, it was producing about 55% of its maximum generation capacity. And that was because of these very, very frequent outages. I mean, we're talking about over 100 days a year where, where this plant wasn't operating. So what happens when the plant isn't operating is that Utilities like Energy New Orleans, for instance, that were relying on this power, expecting to get this electricity, now have to go and try and find that electricity someplace else. So you might buy it off the open market. Um, you might ramp up a gas plant that you have, but then you have to buy more gas for it. And all the while, those fixed costs at your at the at Grand Gulf aren't going away. You're still paying hundreds of, of salaries and you still have to keep the lights on and, and, and all of that. So and the other thing with nuclear plants is that the fuel is so cheap that when the plant is offline, you're not really saving all that much money by, by reduced fuel costs. So you're really, you know, the cost when the plant is running and not running are really similar, except when it's off, we just have to buy other power <laughs> elsewhere. Right. And the ratepayers have to pay to repair Grand Gulf too, with That's all the problems it has. I mean, this complaint, this complaint details, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in complaint in repairs that have been done to Grand Gulf. It seems like the complainants are kind of asking, you know, why, why are we continuing to, to throw money into this, into this thing that clearly isn't working? Yeah. And, and so the outages, some of the outages this year actually were, were expected. And, and I think what Entergy's defense has been is that a lot of these outages, a lot of these repairs are so that we can keep this as a long-term resource for the region. Um, you know, a another argument that Entergy will put down a lot is that it's a really important resource to keep up um, to keep our carbon emissions low. So, so we're part of kind of a, a regional electricity grid operating system. It's called MISO for short. But basically how it works is that Entergy New Orleans doesn't just produce electricity for New Orleans. Um, it might produce the amount of electricity that New Orleans needs, but it's really feeding all that electricity onto this kind of centralized market. I think, I think the, the idea is probably that we're always purchasing power, but if part of the system is down, we're purchasing more power than we generally be purchasing. Yeah, yeah it, it gets tough because we, we, New Orleans has a, has a ownership stake. Of, of about 17% of the electricity that Grand Gulf produces. Right, so we're losing money on sold power too. Exactly, so that so Grand Gulf is pretty far away. So it might not be that the electricity travels all the way just to New Orleans homes, um, but it might be that we sell that electricity and then we buy cheaper electricity off the market. So whether the electricity is coming directly to New Orleans or whether we're selling it on the market, it, it still is going to cause an increased cost for customers. Yeah, the, over, the, the bottom line is that between, between repairs, purchase power, and lost revenue on, on power that we should have been able to, that, that Energy New Orleans should have had a stake in selling, it, the, the bottom line is it's costing us more money. Okay. You may have answered this already. When was Grand Gulf built and has it always been plagued by problems? Yeah, the, the plant started operating in 1985, um, and I'm not sure, I haven't reached back all the way into, you know, the late 80s and 90s, um, you know, in, in 
this millennium, uh, it, it definitely has seen consistent problems. But again, it's that argument between do we put down the money right now to do this maintenance and try to squeeze another 20 years out of this thing? Or do we just fold and say it's time to try something else? Um, so Grand Gulf is really part of a, a big part of you know the energy outlook for this region. If Grand Gulf became unavailable, if, if we did decide to scrap it, that it came, became too expensive or too unsafe or whatever it was, I mean, that would cause a pretty big overhaul in what you know the, the kind of planned future for, for electricity here is and, and that's a system you have to build out really far in advance right um you know it takes years and years and years to get approval to build a new plant to get it up and running um so these decisions are made out 10 20 years at a time so those decisions are being made on the basis that grand gulf is going to be there and it's going to produce all this energy all this low carbon emitting energy um so it, it would really throw a wrench into the works if, if somehow this um you know went offline i don't think that's really in the cards right now i mean we'll, we'll see if these reliability problems persist um entergy is claiming that with all these fixes that you know it should get better from here but you know we'll, we'll have to see and when you say if we decide that it's not worth it anymore and we're going to scrap it and move on to something else or choose something else who is we um i have almost no idea how that would work because you're dealing with you know i don't know five or six different regulatory agencies you're dealing with FERC, which is the federal regulatory agency here um you're dealing with miso which would have to approve this so I have no idea what the process would look like okay. to actually shut down Grand Gulf. Um, it would be a big deal. It would take a lot and it would have to be a pretty extreme circumstance, I think. Right. But I get, where I guess I'm going with that is bottom line on this is that the New Orleans City Council is advocating on behalf of, of us, the, the customers in the region, along with the other two complainants here to make sure that we're being served the way we need to be as, as customers of an energy company. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, this could be, you know, the enforcement mechanism where it's, you know, energy, you know, it's a signal to energy that they have to start making this thing work better. Right. Um, or we're going to, you know, they're going to be stuck with the extra costs on this. So so it, it's, it's both trying to get this refund and I think sending a signal that, you know, these problems just can't keep happening every year and, and expecting our customers to foot the cost. So, yeah, I, you know, Entergy New Orleans is is the regulator of Entergy New Orleans. They represent us in in this case, but um, there are a ton of regulators and a ton of companies and a, uh, a ton of regulatory bodies that are um, kind of uh, have have partial control over this. So, um, you know, there are a lot of layers to this regulation. So it's not just in the city council's control. Right, and joining those two other complainants, it's it's a pretty hefty shot across the bow. It's pretty big signal. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, you know, the numbers, you know, um, quoted in, 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 in the complaint are, are high, um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, something that, you know, sometimes, you know, in city council, they, they pass certain fines, $1 million, $5 million, which hurts. But the, the money we're talking about in a complaint like this just really hits the bottom line. I mean, this is something that will really get the attention at energy. So, yeah, it's, it's a pretty big deal. Right. OK, thanks, Michael. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Madeline Arufo, and I'm a freelance reporter for The Lens. 
Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That takes time, and it takes resources. As a nonprofit, we count on donations to fund our work. Please consider helping us to do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelinsnola.org slash donate. Thank you for your support. Charles for Nick and Criminal Justice. Our new district attorney of Orleans Parish, Jason Williams, has vacated 22 non-unanimous jury verdicts. He campaigned on some reform. It's part of an initiative that he promised as candidate for DA. Can you explain what, what Jason Williams just did? Yeah, I mean, and so, and I think a lot of our listeners are going to be familiar with the whole history of this, but I'm just going to bore them with it anyway. <laughs> um, so since 1890, or beginning in 1898, the state of Louisiana allowed non-unanimous juries. It was one of only two states in the country uh, Louisiana and Oregon was the other one. This came out of a uh, rewrite of the state constitution that was kind of uh, setting the framework for the Jim Crow era in Louisiana. And so the, generally it's, it's a lot, it, the way it's interpreted um, by people who know more than me is that the split jury, which allowed up to two jurors to, uh, to dissent without affecting the verdict, was intended to nullify the votes of black jurors, um, you know, who in 1898 had only been allowed to serve on a jury, uh, juries and for a short period of time. So the, the use of, of non-unanimous juries, it, it became a focus of, uh, you know, fast forward quite a lot. Um, it, it became a focus of a, uh, a series in The Advocate a few years ago, uh, which ended up winning a, a Pulitzer Prize. And, uh, you know, some of the findings were that uh, you know, it was uh, that that black defendants were more likely than white defendants to be found guilty in a split jury verdict, and uh, that there there were you know there there they they also found evidence you know that there were there there were racial differences in the way that that jurors were voting in these juries, and, and then later that year uh, the uh, state of Louisiana voted on a constitutional amendment to repeal the un unanimous jury law. It passed overwhelmingly, but. It only worked prospectively, the new constitutional amendment, meaning that it only applied to cases that were initiated on or after January 1st, 2019. That left a lot of people who had been convicted under split juries with no immediate recourse. So last year, this the U.S. Supreme Court then found that non-unanimous juries were unconstitutional under, under the U.S. Constitution. But that decision only applied to cases that were still in the appeals process, which then again left many, many people in Louisiana who had been convicted under a split jury and who had exhausted their appeals with no immediate recourse. Now, that is going once more in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. That's in the process now that a case that could result in vacating the verdicts for all non-unanimous juries, but we don't know if that's going to happen. Right. We don't know when that decision is going to come down, and of course we don't know what it's going to be. Now, uh, enter Jason Williams, who is our new DA and who ran on a strong reform platform. He said that he's not going to wait for the Supreme Court in this latest case, and he is going to undertake a review of at least 300 cases that came out of Orleans Parish that resulted in a split jury 
guilty verdict. Mm. And the number three, the, the 300, you know, there are more than that, but the 300 is important because these are the 300 people who are, that we know of, or that they know of, who are still in prison under a, uh, under a split jury verdict. And so last week, his office's civil rights division, uh, which is a, a newly formed division headed by Emily Ma, who used to uh, head up the Innocence Project New Orleans, uh, they uh, they went into uh, the section G of criminal district court and and uh, announced that they would vacate the 22 cases that came out of that section that resulted in split jury guilty verdicts. Only one section. They have other sections. They're in, like reviewing section by section. Yes, actually, um, and this was. Uh, I want to think of it as a little nod to the lenses reporting. They began with Section G um, to acknowledge the legacy of former Section G Judge Frank Shea, who was the Section G judge for 30 years and was sort of infamous for being, you know, his, his sort of fixation on moving cases along as quickly as possible. Uh, and, and, you know, according to people who were in his courtroom at the time, as a result, kind of ignoring due process. And so that's why they began with Section G. So they're doing a, they're doing this section by section. We don't know when they're going to be doing it again yet, uh, but they began with Section G for that reason. What are the next steps for those twenty two? So most of the most of the people, and and you know, to be fair, I was I, I was not uh, I was not actually watching this happen in the courtroom. This was reported by Nick Crastel, who is unavailable today. Yeah. But according to Nick's reporting, most of the people who were part of this. Um, decided to take a plea deal sort of uh, for, for a lesser offense. Um, and those will play out over the next weeks and months. I imagine in some cases that could result in an immediate release once they, once they finalize their pleas. With time, on, time served? I mean, you'd think. Yeah, depending on how long they've served and, and what it is that they're pleading to. Okay. Um, and, you know, this 300, again, is a big enough project to, to undertake, but we're not even touching, nor have we yet discussed, uh, the unknown number of cases just in Orleans Parish where there was a split jury guilty verdict um, and the person served time and is now back out in society again. Right. Um, this, this 300 is just the people who are still in prison. And there's statewide, there's another, I want to say, 1,500 or so who are in the same circumstance. But there are certainly people that still in jail. Yeah. Oh, yeah. These are the people we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. That's the people we're talking about. The people who are still in. So first of all, we have, to my knowledge, Orleans Parish is the only undertaking a review like this. And we also have that group whose whose uh, whose verdicts were sort of undone by last year's Supreme Court decision. And those are still sort of those are moving through the process as we speak. Another, you know, one that was recently vacated was um, Cardell Hayes. Um, who was convicted of killing former Saints player Will Smith. He was one of those who was in the category of not yet having exhausted his appeals. His uh, conviction, which was a 10-2 verdict, was just in the past couple days uh, vacated. Um, so, you know, he could, be, he could be facing a new trial. Okay. Jason Williams is off to a big start. What else is he doing so far of note? So the other promises, and, and a lot of this is, you know, we're not going to be able to say that he's accomplished this or not accomplished this over time. The, in this case, you know, he was able to do this, uh, you know, he, he was able to show that he was, he was living up to his promise in one big go all at once. The rest of it will have to be determined over time. 
you know, to see, you know, is the DA's office bringing fewer cases uh, for low-level nonviolent drug offenses? That was one of his. That was one of his big promise promises. You know, is the DA's office uh, reviewing other categories of cases in its civil rights division other than just these non-unanimous juries? You know, cases where there are questions about, you know, so-called Brady evidence where, uh, you know, the prosecution has been accused of, uh, of hiding evidence that could be exculpatory. You know, those sorts of things are going to play out over time. We'll, we'll just have to wait to see, you know, how, how the, the pattern looks over time. And, you know, part of that is complicated by the fact that we're not having jury trials right now. So, the, you know, part, at least part of the court is at kind of a standstill right now. Right. This used to be your beat, right, Charles? Uh, partly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Were you jack of all trades? Yes. Well, I used to. I used to be on city hall and uh, criminal justice. Although I started out very early on as a cops and courts reporter, um, in the more in the more traditional sense, where I was, you know, going to perp walks and stuff, and and uh, you know, following around, following shootings around and stuff like that. So. All right. Well, thank you for that today. You did a great job for Nick. Nightcrawler, the movie? Yes. No. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is like... Oh, I remember that movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a great movie. That's how I got my start. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, thank you for all your work this week. It was a really great week. Thank you. Nice. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>